Welcome back for more, you gluttons for punishment. Okay, so this week is about briefly introducing you to search and seizure and to the way that case law has established and kind of disestablished ulterior ways around traditional search and seizure protections in the Constitution. So first off, what amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures? Think back to last week. I know, so long ago. To those of you who said the Fourth Amendment, you are correct. This amendment, again, gives you a protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. It reads verbatim, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. For now, we'll focus in on that first part. More about the warrants and lack of warrants to come later in the term. So why was there such a hoopla about these pesky searches and seizures anyway? While some laws about search and seizure existed well before the adoption of the Fourth Amendment, the authors of the Fourth Amendment wanted to double down on their insistence to limit power of law enforcement to unreasonably infringe upon people's rights as a way to protect both liberty and privacy. Those two things were frequently deemed very important by our founders, and they clearly questioned whether or not we could really just trust law enforcement to do the right thing to uphold these things, and they didn't really want the system itself to have too much power either. The fact that nearly half of the Bill of Rights pertain to the CJ system is pretty telling. Anyway, back on track here. So how do we establish, one, what a search and seizure is, and two, if it was unreasonable? Let's dig in, shall we? So when evaluating Fourth Amendment issues, you have to first address what is a search and what is a seizure. So according to their legal definitions, a search involves law enforcement going through part or all of an individual's property looking for specific items that are related to a crime that they have a reason to believe was committed. And a seizure is when an officer takes possession of items during the search. And it applies to people, too, and this will become important a little bit later. So now that we know what each means, the next part is establishing whether or not the law enforcement action is a search or a seizure. Did law enforcement go through property to look for something related to a crime they have a reason to believe was, or was committed? And did they take possession of the thing or the person? If the action isn't one of those things, then it isn't a Fourth Amendment issue and the analysis essentially ends. But if it was, we move on to question two. Was the action reasonable? Precise definitions and exact applications aren't a strong suit in legal context, which makes things even more confusing, I know. But let me try to break it down. In the context of the Fourth Amendment, does the law enforcement intrusion do enough to protect liberty and privacy while balancing the governmental interest? Did they get a warrant? If not, does the situation justify the action as being reasonable? So example, would another officer do the same? If so, it's likely reasonable. And then lastly, if the action was unreasonable, does the Fourth Amendment ban its use of the evidence? And as a fun fact or a not so fun fact, just because evidence is obtained in an unreasonable way does not necessarily mean it gets thrown out. Say what? This will be a main focal point in weeks coming later in the term. So hopefully that's a good way to entice you to come back for more. Okay, so there's your brief search and seizure lesson. Don't worry, we'll be covering much more um, depth of the Fourth Amendment in future weeks. But for now, let's talk briefly about that pesky little gray area of the Fourth Amendment with stop and frisk. So to recap, to search and seize, an officer needs probable cause. The stinking Constitution says so. But then came Terry versus Ohio in 1968. This is one of the most seminal criminal law cases as it drastically shifted the landscape of what law enforcement had the power to do. So before Terry versus Ohio, police had to have probable cause. 
I'll argue that this likely wasn't the case in practicality, but legally it was the standard at least. However, after the Terry case, police now could have what's called reasonable suspicion to do things like stopping and frisking someone. So how did this come to be? Well, let's dig into the case. It was a cold, snowy day in Cleveland in 1963. Well, just kidding. I have no idea what the weather conditions were, but it was in Cleveland and it was in 1963. So anyway, a plainclothes detective, Detective McFadden, observed two men standing on a street corner, and he watched them as they walked back and forth down the sidewalk, pausing to stare into a store window each time. And he said they saw them do this multiple times, upwards of, you know, 20 some odd times. And a third man briefly joined and left. Um, Detective McFadden decided he was quite suspicious of them, what he deemed to be casing the store for possibly a stick-up, and followed them as the two men rejoined the third a few blocks away. And the detective approached them, he identified himself, and he asked for names, and then the men mumbled, and so the detective ended up spinning Terry around, patted down the outside of his clothing, and felt a pistol in his coat pocket. He then patted down the other two men and seized a revolver from the pocket of one of them. And the men were taken to the police station, and they ended up being charged with carrying concealed weapons. And no, they didn't have CCWs, for those who want to ask. So what's the problem here? Did anyone notice that Detective McFadden didn't have probable cause? What he did have was what would become known as reasonable suspicion. And that's what he used to justify the pat-down that he did over the outer portion of their clothes where he felt those um, weapons. So what's the difference, though, between probable cause and reasonable suspicion? Great question. And again, legal concepts hate strict definitions, but the gist is that probable cause exists when the facts and circumstances known by the police officer would lead a reasonable person to believe that the suspect has committed, is committing, or is attempting to commit a crime. And this also applies for a place. So like that a crime was committed at the place to be searched and the evidence of the crime exists at that location. And probable cause is the standard set out in the Fourth Amendment. That language is literally written in the Fourth Amendment, probable cause, that, that term is at least. But this is where this Terry case comes in. The Supreme Court said, you know what? That just isn't enough. Officers should have the ability to temporarily stop people when they're suspicious of criminal activity, especially in the name of officer safety. So let's allow them to temporarily detain people and then they can pat them down too. And so they did just that. They ruled that Detective McFadden's actions did not violate the Fourth Amendment, and they essentially rewrote Fourth Amendment jurisprudence to now say that officers have the ability to make temporary detentions to do things like stop and frisk if they have reasonable suspicion. And what is reasonable suspicion? Well, a police officer has reasonable suspicion if, based upon the facts and circumstances of the situation, a reasonable officer would have had the same suspicion. It's basically the whole, I'm a cop and I know crime when I see it idea. And so this opens the door for earlier intervention of criminal activity, because you can actually use reasonable suspicion. And if you had reasonable suspicion, it could elevate up to something like probable cause. But it also leads to earlier contact for instances when no criminal activity is actually being done. Remember, reasonable suspicion is a lower level of knowledge than probable cause. And that's what all the data is there for you this week to explore, to showcase how case law, like this Kateri decision, can drastically alter criminal procedure protections. Prior to the Terry ruling, reasonable suspicion didn't legally exist. And this case opened the door for it. 
and for the many stop and frisk issues that have been seen across cities in the United States since. New York is our prime example. Under stop and frisk policies, police in New York were stopping and frisking upwards of 700,000 people per year by the late 2000s. That's more than the entire Sacramento population, by the way. And most of those stops, 85% in most years, were Black and Hispanic. And most, upwards of 90%, were innocent of any wrongdoing. So the reasonable suspicion never led to any type of probable cause for arrest. And guns were found in less than 2% of the stops. Remember, the rationale for this was officer safety. So it seems a bit off from what the actual purpose of, of how it was being used was for. So stop and frisk policies got a bad rap for a good reason, as the effectiveness and utility just didn't seem to match the underlying philosophy of why police were doing it. And so there were class action lawsuits that gained some traction. The Center for Constitutional Rights filed Daniels et al. versus City of New York in 1999, accusing the NYPD of racially biased policing stops and illegally stopping people without true reasonable suspicion. And while a settlement in 2003 was made requiring the NYPD to maintain anti-racial profiling policies and audits of officer stops, among other things, the data continued to show incredibly racially skewed stops. And so the Center for Constitutional Rights then filed Floyd et al. versus the city of New York. And in a historical landmark ruling in 2013, the NYPD's stops were deemed unconstitutional. So this doesn't mean it overturns the Terry ruling to eliminate temporary stops, so reasonable suspicion is still a thing, but it did at least provide more oversight for how reasonable suspicion plays a role in needs limitations. Just this time, they were able to do it by showing not only violations of the Fourth Amendment for reasonable suspicion issues, but also the Equal Protection Clause and the Fourteenth Amendment. So see, not all case law is bad here, and I hope that this whole episode is showing you how case law shapes and continues to shape the law enforcement landscape. And not just the amendments matter. The case law is there to establish the protocols and it does just as much. And it's all ever changing. So there are always going to be changes to it. All right. Until next time.